concerns progress against COVID could be threatened by new variants has just announced he's moving up the vaccination timeline. Now declaring all adults will be eligible for vaccinations as of April 19th. The president speaking to reporters late today, acknowledging that cases are rising again. His warning coming as health experts continue to debate if the country has entered a fourth wave of illness and what that looks like. In a few minutes, my exclusive conversation with the governor of New Jersey, one of the states trying to manage a troubling rise in cases. But if theirs is a cautionary tale, it is not being heeded by a growing number of states that tonight seem eager to move on. And that's where we start with Miguel Almaguer. It was the state hit hardest by the deadly winter surge. Now California, the world's fifth largest economy, plans to fully reopen by June 15th, if all goes well. We are seeing bright light at the end of the tunnel. California's slow, measured approach, far different than the one unfolding in Texas. In striking defiance of CDC guidance, the Rangers hosted a sellout crowd of 38,000, making social distancing nearly impossible. And though masks were required, they were often not worn. The team holding a moment of silence for COVID victims and healthcare workers, though experts say it's events exactly like this that can jeopardize lives. Right now, the problem is uh, we still have a chunk of Americans who are high risk who have not gotten vaccinated. Though Texas has seen a 19% drop in COVID cases, states in over half the country are recording a rise in infections. Minnesota's hospitalizations doubling in five weeks. In Michigan, the situation growing critical. The hospital's filling up and the emergency department is filling up as well. Hoping to quickly reach herd immunity, today the president says states should open vaccinations to all adults by April 19th, nearly two weeks earlier than his previous goal. Today, new research suggesting Moderna's vaccine, like Pfizer's, remains effective for at least six months. But even as the U.S. averages 3 million vaccinations a day with 169 million shots into arms so far, variants are fueling new worries. Still, states like New Jersey, with rising cases and hospitalizations, are already loosening more restrictions. The country eager to move forward while still facing the threat of its deadly past. Miguel Almaguer, NBC News. And today I spent time in one of those states struggling with rising cases, New Jersey, with the second highest rate of new infections per capita. In an NBC News exclusive, I spoke to New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy about what's happening there and why. So we've got 17 different places in Newark right now. I met up with New Jersey's governor as he visited a FEMA vaccination site in Newark today. Is this number one? Huh? Is yeah, this first? One of the battlegrounds in the state's urgent fight to reverse an increase in COVID infections. Yeah, we rank highly, unfortunately. Densest state in America, densest region in America, a cold weather winter state, multi-generational families. Are you in a, a new wave right now? I think we are uh, in a plateau. Uh, we're up somewhat over the past couple of weeks, but still down meaningfully from where we were in January. Over the last 13 days, New Jersey has a nearly 13% increase in cases. Hit hard at the start of the pandemic, New Jersey, under Governor Phil Murphy, already has the highest COVID death toll per capita. Over 24,000 New Jerseyans have died. Another 15 just yesterday. If this was happening at the beginning of the pandemic, you'd 
likely be adding restrictions, not, not reducing them. Is that a fair statement? Well, certainly at the time we did a year ago, and, 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 and that has a lot to do with the fact that none of us knew what hit us. I think you've got variants in our state. We're not really doing a whole lot of opening. New Jersey recently eased capacity restrictions for indoor dining, entertainment venues, gyms, among others, but has moved more cautiously than many other states. Are the decisions now in terms of allowing, you know, half capacity in restaurants, for example, are those science-based or based on pressure from restaurant owners? Now, we, I mean, uh, we have nothing but sympathy for the restaurant industry as an example, which has been completely clobbered. Uh, but we're still making the decisions based on the data. There have been some states that have largely thrown away, uh, lifted all their restrictions and are doing better than New Jersey. Does that frustrate you? I think it's because of less density and warmer weather, honestly. They're able to spread out more than we can, and they're able to live more of their lives outdoors than we can. It's a reason for us to remain sober and, and to double down on our efforts, and we'll continue to do that. The state working to head off what models project is a worst case. Worst case is four or 5,000 folks in the hospital. Our peak in the spring last year was just under 8,300. New Jersey has administered more than 4.7 million vaccine doses, but has been slower than many states in expanding eligibility. So you have, uh, New Jersey now has dropped the eligibility to age 55 and over, so as of yesterday, you qualify. I'm, I'm in. Governor Murphy does not foresee tightened restrictions in New Jersey's future. The bottom of his tool bag should cases continue to rise. Maybe a plea from the heart. We know that you're fatigued. We know you're sick of this. But please, God, keep doing the basic stuff. Get vaccinated. Get tested if you need to be. In line with President Biden's new directive, Governor Murphy says New Jersey will open up vaccinations to all its residents over the age of 16 on April 19th. And here's where we stand tonight. More than 108 million Americans have received at least one vaccine dose. The number of hospitalized remains steady at about 34,000. And make a plan so you'll be ready when it's your turn for your vaccination. Visit planyourvaccine.com for more. In just 60 seconds, a shooting at a Navy office. The suspect then shot and killed at a nearby military base. And the heartbreaking scene as a border agent comes across a migrant child abandoned. The use of force by police and how much is necessary was the key focus today at the murder trial of Derek Chauvin, the former police officer charged in the death of George Floyd. Gabe Gutierrez is in Minneapolis. With former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin taking notes, today prosecutors drilled down on use of force policies. When it's safe and feasible, that we shall de-escalate. Bringing officer after officer to the stand. We want to use the, the least amount of force necessary to, to meet your objectives. Lieutenant Johnny Mercil oversees the department's use of force training. Say, for example, the subject was under control and handcuffed, would this be authorized? I would say no. But Chauvin's attorney, Eric Nelson, doubled down, arguing that an angry crowd of bystanders distracted him and that George Floyd died from drug use and underlying medical conditions. Not that nine and a half minutes Chauvin pinned Floyd down with his knee. During cross-examination, Nelson also brought up this training picture that shows an officer restraining a suspect with his knee across his shoulders and neck. If that person were to be handcuffed and circumstances dictated, the officer would be permitted to continue to hold his knee in that same position. Agreed? 
Uh, I would say uh, yes. Uh, however, we caution officers that be mindful of the neck area and to look for the shoulder. Hanging um, over the case, a potential key witness. Today, Maurice Hall appeared remotely out of the jury's view. He's the passenger in Floyd's SUV seen here in this body camera video. His lawyer says he'd invoke the Fifth Amendment to avoid questions about whether he provided Floyd drugs. He has been provided no immunity, no protection for his testimony whatsoever. The judge asked both sides to draft a list of limited questions for review. Also expected later this week, crucial testimony from the county medical examiner. For the Floyd family, a painstaking process. It's like trying to squeeze water out of a rock right now. But my family, we have the faith. It's small as a mustard seed. We're going to get through this. Dave, I think it's fair to say some of the testimony today was more tactical than some of the more emotional accounts we've seen. How was the jury reacting? Well, Lester, according to a pool reporter inside the courtroom, one juror appeared to be sleeping at one point. Several others yawning. Lester? All right, Gabe, thank you. Police and military investigators are searching for a motive this evening after a Navy corpsman shot and wounded two sailors in Frederick, Maryland, before he was shot and killed at a nearby military base. Tom Costello has late details. It happened at 8.20 this morning. All units... 1043, city is operating on an active shooter event. Two Navy sailors shot at a Navy office in Frederick, Maryland, an hour outside of Washington. Police say the 38-year-old suspect, Navy hospital corpsman Fantahun Gurma Walden Senfet, quickly sped away. We have a male subject in an Army-type suit with an AR-15. Minutes later, breaching the gate at Fort Detrick Military Base and leading base police on a chase before they opened fire. The suspect's car riddled with bullets. They were able to stop him in a parking lot, uh, then uh, uh, brandished uh, a weapon, and um, our uh, police department uh, was able to uh, neutralize uh, the subject. Both victims were airlifted to a trauma center in Baltimore, where tonight one is in critical condition, the other just released from the hospital. While the victims and the suspect all worked at Fort Detrick, it is not clear whether they knew each other. Every time we turn on the TV, we're seeing something like this happen, and now it's happening in our backyard, so no one wants to see this type of thing. Tonight, federal, military, local, and state police are still searching for evidence and answers. Tom Costello, NBC News, Washington. Four days after that deadly car attack on U.S. Capitol police officers, new video shows the suspect buying the knife he waved at police before he was shot and killed. The store owner says the knife seen in police photos matches the one suspect purchased. And now to the migrant surge at the border in the searing new video of a young boy whose face we want you to see telling a border patrol agent he was abandoned in the desert trying to cross into the U.S. without his parents. Andrea Mitchell has that story. It's heartbreaking to watch a young boy approaching a U.S. border patrol agent last Thursday in the middle of the desert alone and sobbing can you help me he says i was coming with a group and they abandoned me and i don't know where they are they left you alone the agent asks they abandoned me he says adding his parents were not with him and he was afraid of being kidnapped it is just the latest shocking video of unaccompanied migrant children crossing the border Last week, surveillance cameras capturing a smuggler tossing three- and five-year-old toddler girls from Ecuador over a 14-foot border fence, then running away. Incredibly, the two sisters were uninjured. 
part of a record migrant surge after President Biden changed border policy, allowing unaccompanied children to stay in the U.S. We are encountering so many children, about 100 a day, here in the El Paso region that are just turning themselves in. There are currently more than 19,000 unaccompanied migrant children in U.S. custody, more than 4,000 held by the Border Patrol in severely overcrowded detention facilities like this one in Donna, Texas, where they are packed shoulder to shoulder in a pandemic. Tonight, the Border Patrol is telling Tonalundo that the boy is safe at one of their facilities. The next step would be trying to reach his parents as the record-breaking number of unaccompanied children continue to cross the border. Lester. All right, Andrea Mitchell. And then there's this. Human rights groups say the children of Myanmar are paying a terrible price at the hands of security forces in a horrifying crackdown following the military coup two months ago. Keir Simmons is following the situation there. Seven-year-old Chim Yu Chit was shot by a soldier in her own home. Myanmar's youngest victim of a brutal military crackdown. But tonight, human rights groups say, is sparing no one, including an alarming number of children. Well over 40 children who have been killed. The seven-year-old's family say she died in her father's arms. How does a seven-year-old girl get killed by the military? The military barged into her house. Uh, obviously, the uh, young girl was alarmed and ran towards her father, and one of the soldiers just shot her. Myanmar's military holding a parade while parents cry over caskets. An 11-year-old was buried with her toys. A one-year-old baby wounded in the eye by a rubber bullet. The ruthlessness caught on camera when this teen on a motorbike was shot in cold blood. The death toll of pro-democracy demonstrators since a coup two months ago, now 550. Killed by a military, armed from abroad by countries including China and Russia. These governments have blood on their hands, and the blood on their hands is from the Myanmar children. Many governments, including the U.S., have demanded Myanmar return to democracy. Tonight, the protesters are vowing to stay on the streets. Lester? It's a lot to take. All right, Kier, thank you. After Next, after working from home, can companies require you to return to the office? We're back now with our series, The American Worker. As vaccinations rise, a growing number of employees are returning to the office. But what will your workplace look like, and can your company require you to get vaccinated? Here's Jolene Kent. As companies plan to bring employees back to the office, the reality of returning is setting in. It is a little nerve-wracking. If my company like forces me to go back, I'm going to try to look for another job. And the questions are piling up. How are you going to keep it safe? Have people been vaccinated? Can an employer require you to come back to work if you're getting the job done just fine at home? There's no reason that employer can't require employees to return back to work if they think that would be most effective, even for employees who have been working productively and efficiently. While masks, social distancing, and reduced capacities will likely be required, what about vaccines? Three have been authorized by the FDA for emergency use, and full approvals are expected. But can private companies mandate them? The law does permit an employer to require employees receive even a vaccine that only has an EUA. Whether fully approved or not, you have to make reasonable accommodations for people with disabilities or sincerely held religious beliefs. And when the doors do reopen, things will look very different. We install UVC lights, which basically as air comes into the building, it kills all airborne pathogens 
and brings fresher air into the building. At Rios, a design firm in Los Angeles, they're also installing massive fans, spacing out desks, and opening garage doors. What was your number one priority? Our primary priority was to really find a genuine way to do it for ourselves. Safety as a baseline. But then we started to implement bigger ideas of really understanding what to do in the office when you're coming in two days a week. What were we prioritizing in our work process? One popular new strategy for employers, no more personal desks. Instead, reserve an empty desk ahead of time on an app. Your first stop of the office is actually a locker where you pick up your own keyboard and mouse. Then you head to the already sanitized desk and get to work. And these changes will last far beyond the pandemic. It definitely was a long-term investment. You know, I think for us, we really wanted to embrace the future of redefining what work could be. So, Joe, do employees actually have a say in what their future offices will look and feel like? Lester, in many cases, yes. A lot of companies, big and small, tell us they're asking their employees what they want and need in order to feel safe. So now really is the time to speak up. Take that survey, reach out to your supervisors, weigh in before the decisions are made, and it's too late to have a say. Lester? A lot of adjustments in the future. All right, Joe, thanks. This summer's All-Star Game has a new home. The MLB announced the game will be played in Denver after moving it out of Atlanta in protest of Georgia's GOP-backed new law restricting voting rights. Many Republicans have blasted the decision. Today, President Biden told Georgia and other states looking to pass similar laws to, quote, smarten up. Up next for us, the hug they waited a year for, inspiring America. With so many separated by the pandemic for so long, we want to show you what it was like for one couple in Colorado, together again at last. Here's Kristen Dogman. For the past year, I'm here for you, honey. This was as close as Carl Weichi and his wife Donna could get. We'll try to get through this. Donna has late-stage Alzheimer's and has been confined to a long-term care facility. He's the love of my life. So. Carl has dutifully visited three times a week working hard to bring her a smile. There you go. So when Colorado announced it would allow visitors... Ready? I'm ready. Carl I'm ready. was giddy, waiting to see his high school sweetheart and wife of 55 years. I get to give you a hug. Our Denver affiliate KUSA with cameras rolling for their first hug in a year. She held my hand the whole time. Donna is now nonverbal, but she hummed along as her husband sang. Even a pandemic, no match for true love. Kristen Dahlgren, NBC News. As sweet a moment as they come. That's nightly news for this Tuesday. Thank you for watching. Please take care of yourself and each other. Good night. Filter Daily Digital show is up in about four and a half minutes. The description of the show today says damning testimony in Chauvin trial. 
N-O-I, capital attack, response. Oh, Nation of Islam, capital attack, response. Mitch threatens this over voter law for April the 6th. 2021 Tuesday. It's now 8.02 p.m. Hello, thank you for listening and supporting the show. There's so many new countries coming on online. It's hard to keep up all keep up on all of them, but A big welcome to your global family village. Continuing with the show notes for Roland Martin Unfiltered today. More damning testimony in Chauvin trial. Nation of Islam responds to the Capitol attack. Mitch threatens businesses who condemn voter suppression law will honor the life and legacy of Representative Elsie Hastings. Republicans continue their opposition against Kristen Clark's DOJ nomination. Representative Ayanna Presley calls for President Biden to cancel student loan debt. Can you use crowdfunding to get your business started? Another two minutes and a few seconds. did post some of the Derek Chauvin murder trial for Minneapolis, Minnesota in the United States of America. The ex-police officer on trial for the murder of George Floyd. There was two witnesses in the courtroom and then there was a video video conference between the judge and this other man that was in the vehicle with George Floyd with his attorney representing him via video some sort of a video or streaming platform. They went before Judge Peter Cahill to basically say that if he was forced into court to testify, he would take the Fifth Amendment, saying that anything he would say would would basically cancel out all his rights. So he um, 
he's resisting coming into court, but it's not up to him or his attorney. If the judge orders them to appear in court, that's the end of that. They, if they resist, they can be thrown in jail for contempt of court. But the man is accused of selling drugs to George Floyd and also accused of going into the Cup Foods store with counterfeit money a day before George Floyd was accused of using a counterfeit $20 bill. So the trial is heating up and they had a testimony from two of their training officers, live testimony. The lieutenant from the training department was very interesting. There was a, a young lady from the emergency medical training. Today is April 6, 2021, coming up on Roller Martin Unfiltered, day seven of the murder trial of Derek Chauvin. We'll show you what took place in the Minneapolis courtroom. Nation of Islam has responded to the attack on the Capitol Friday by a man who said he was a member. Congressman Alcee Hastings uh, has passed away. We'll remember him with Florida Representative Val Demings and former Congressman for Florida, Kendrick Meek. Mr. McConnell threatens businesses, businesses with serious consequences after many condemn Georgia's restrictive voting laws. Actually, it's pretty funny. He's telling corporations to pipe down. But then he said, but y'all can keep sending y'all money. Classic Mitch. Also in our black business segment, how can you use crowdfunding to get your business started? All that more. It is time to bring the funk on Roller Mark Unfiltered. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the piss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the It's in vogue, wonderful music. Or why, or anything like that? 
No, Your Honor, I do not agree. The How would that, when it did not incriminate the clerk who said he thought he was high, how would it be that Mr. Hall saying that would incriminate him? Well, because, first of all, Judge, the inquiry is not what evidence is in front of the jury. What testimony have they heard? No, I'm just using that as an analogy on how that certainly didn't incriminate the store clerk by saying, well, he appeared high. Well, Mr. Hall saying, well, he appeared like he was falling asleep and it happened suddenly. Without anything else, it seems to be a parallel type evidence. I was using it as an analogy. I understand, Judge, but the whole point here is to prevent Mr. Hall from incriminating himself. And him even answering that question that he was in the car puts him in very close proximity with Mr. Floyd and very close in time before he's alleged to have ingested drugs. And again, it exposes him on that third degree murder charge. If there were to be a future third degree murder charge and Mr. Hall was charged with basically being involved in this drug activity that had caused Mr. Floyd to pass away due to an overdose, him even being in that car incriminates him in terms of behaviors of Mr. Floyd, what he observed when he observed it. So, no, Your Honor, I would argue that it definitely would expose him to potential incrimination. And the observations of the officer in that situation, I think you described on direct examination, you described that an officer will also take into and apply to the critical decision-making model his own sensory, his or her own sensory perception. Yes, sir. So the touch of having a feeling a suspect be tense, right? Yes, sir. Or loose, right? Yes, sir. What they may hear comes into play. Yes, sir. So if they hear people threatening them or potentially threatening violence, that goes into that critical decision-making model as well. Yes, sir. And oftentimes the scene of an arrested individual is very tense, right? Yes, sir. Now, defense counsel asked you if the officer should just focus on one small thing. And I would like you to make some sort of comment on differentiating between a small thing and a big thing. Because you would agree that something that is a big thing would probably be more important than a small thing, right? It depends on what the big thing is and what the small thing is. Well, for example, if we're looking at assessing somebody's medical condition for the purpose of rendering emergency aid, would that be a big thing or a small thing? That would be a big thing. If then that is contrasted with, say, a 17-year-old filming you with a camera, would that be a big thing, the filming, or a small thing? The filming would be a small thing. If there was something like passive resistance, neither the conscious neck restraint nor the unconscious neck restraint would be authorized. Is that right? Would not be authorized? Would not be authorized. That is correct. And an unconscious neck restraint would not even be authorized for some forms of active resistance, would it? That's correct. And if the subject is offering no resistance, obviously, then no neck restraint would be authorized. That's correct. Or any restraint. Or any. Or any restraint. If there's no. Yeah, generally, no. Okay. In addition to the classroom training, you actually teach officers, show them physically how to do these sort of neck restraints? Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case has been well briefed and argued. We'll take it under advisement.
Uh, at this time, I'd like to republish Exhibit 17. Sir, is this an MPD-trained neck restraint? No, sir. Has it ever been? Not to my neck restraint? No, sir. Is this an MPD-authorized uh, restraint technique? Uh, a knee on the neck would be something that uh, does happen in use of force that isn't unauthorized. And under what circumstances would that be authorized? How long can you do that? I don't know if there's a time frame. It would depend on the circumstance of the time. Which would include what? The type of resistance you're getting from the subject that you're putting the knee on. And so if there was, uh, say for example, uh, the subject was under control and handcuffed, would this be authorized? I would say no. Now in terms of the, con the continuation of use of force, and we're talking about involvement of onlookers, Right? The words they use matter, correct? Yes, sir, they do. If they're cheering on and saying, good job, officer, that's one consideration, right? Correct. But if they're saying, I'd slap the fuck out of you, or you're a pussy, or you're a chump, would that reasonably tend to rise alarm in a police officer? Yes, sir. I have no further questions. And if they're saying, get off him, you're killing him, should the officer also take that into account and consider whether their actions need to be reassessed? Potentially, sir, yes. Nothing further. Joining us now is trial attorney Jay Wendell Gordon. Uh, Jay Wendell, uh, welcome to Willow Martin Unfiltered. Uh, first, give us a sense of your perspective uh, of that testimony. Having the training expert testify that the actions of Chauvin violated the department policy. Well, you know, that's explosive testimony. And it's what uh, a lot of us have been waiting for to get to the experts. This case, I said from the very beginning, is going to be about the medicine, the physiology, and the experts. It's a beauty contest. And it's, uh, it's really a battle of the experts. So now we've introduced these experts into the situation. We can kind of figure out what, what the policies are, what the law is with regard to the behavior of uh, uh, Derek Chauvin. Now, what I see in this case coming from the defense uh, is a lot of copaganda. I call it copaganda. Like, like first of all, they, they make it seem like they're the only people in the world who have to be concerned about crowds when they're doing their job. Nobody can call them a bum. Nobody can call them a, a B-I-T-C-H. I mean, what kind of profession when you're working with the public where you're not going to receive someone uh, protesting something that you do? You should be a professional like uh, earlier uh, witness had indicated and do your job as you're supposed to do it and if you was that much distracted then uh, you shouldn't have been on his back that, like that you should have been concerned about what's happening behind you so I, at the end of the day uh, I think what we've seen from defense is a bunch of truth decay I think that uh, they have picked some some they created some issues but I don't know that they've created reasonable doubt they challenges they challenged some of the uh, nuances uh, of the case, but they haven't done enough, in my opinion, to create the doubt that they're looking for. Now, granted, they haven't had an opportunity to put on their case, and we should never judge an entire case by only half of the case. But the bottom line is, everything that they're doing is coming from the defense lawyers' playbooks. The three Ds is what I call it, deny, discredit, and destroy, and try to make it seem like we big black African-American men can walk through bullets and we have this superhuman strength and that you have to 
and we feel no pain and that you have to just apply the most excessive and sadistic and draconian forces draconian forces against us for, in order us in order to gain control of us to put us into custody now here you have uh mr floyd he's down and, and nobody even talks about this this is an issue that i saw he's right there by the tailpipe taking in gas fumes he's got He's got someone's knees on, on his neck, and he's got weights all over the bottom of half of his body by these other officers. That is a terrible combination to try to breathe in, first of all, and then to have your, your breathing constricted by someone blocking uh, blood flow to your brain. I mean, that's just a recipe for disaster. And it's in the middle of the May, so it's got to be hot. The ground has got to be hot. I mean, there are all kinds of factors that they didn't even consider that I've considered. And um, I, I just feel like it's not going to be enough. Uh, but we as defense attorneys, and I do do defense work, uh, you have to you have to work with what you have. And we're not magicians. We're just attorneys. So he's doing the best he can with what he has. But at the end of the day, I don't think that it's enough to tip the scale to show doubt. Now, you, you may have scored a few points. And, and points are good. So I'm not taking that away from him. But there needs to be a whole lot more work laid down before uh, you, you've overcome re beyond reason. I mean, be, be before you've overcome reasonable doubt. Now, the prosecution doesn't have to prove their case beyond all doubt. It only has to be beyond reasonable doubt. And so I think they're still in, in the driver's seat. Well, one of the things that um, uh, is interesting, there's a lot of questioning. If a cop is thrown off because somebody is cursing them out, uh, right. you might not want to be a cop. You might not want to do anything. You might just want to hide under a rock. I mean, they call him a bum. Like, how offensive is that? And plus, an officer's peace can never be breached. I mean, officers are trained to deal with people who are protesting their mis their conduct, people who who protest them, who call them names. You can't you can't address each and every body, every seventeen year old girl or ten year old with a with a camera phone or adult filming you while you're doing your job, as long as they are not interfering. And as much as they wanted to, uh, they absolutely exercised great restraint, the type of restraint that Derek Chauvin should have exercised when he got off of, by getting off of uh, uh, Mr. Floyd's neck. And because he didn't, he's sitting in trial facing these very heavy charges. And uh, I, 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 me personally, I hope he gets convicted. Well, uh, we will certainly see uh, what happens next uh, uh, tomorrow. So um, we certainly appreciate it, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Gordon. Thank you so very much. Thank you for having me. All right, folks, my panel today uh, is D. Hawkins Hagler, former Georgia State Representative, uh, Kelly Bethea, Communications Strategist, Mustafa Santiago Ali, a PhD, former Senior Advisor for Environmental Justice, EPA. Uh, this is, uh, again, I, I think... What is very uh, interesting and unique about what we are seeing unfold here, Mustafa, uh, is just this very methodical march by the prosecutors. The fact that we've had so many police officers already testify for the prosecution uh, speaks to something that we rarely see in these cases where that blue wall cracking on behalf of one of their own. Yeah, you know, they're just methodically uh, making these steps toward justice, or at least we hope that it's justice. I've testified in a number of cases over the years, and to see the way that they've laid this out, you know, it's extremely professional, extremely well thought out. Um, and yes, anything can happen uh, on any given day by the time you get to the end of the trial, but uh, I'm feeling very comfortable at this moment uh, with how they've laid it out so far. You know, what we need is for the jury 
to actually believe what they've seen, uh, for the jury to believe what they've heard um, when they're listening to the tapes and the testimony, uh, and then to actually both, you know, come to a conclusion with both their hearts and their heads, because I think all of that is, is beginning to, to come together. Now, it'll be interesting to see when the other side presents its case. But, you know, everything that's been laid out so far has been very clear that Derek Chauvin uh, is guilty of killing George Floyd. Kelly. I agree. Um, I am. I'm happy with how the trial is going so far in that, like you said, there's definitely like a a a, a logic to how things are going. I am particularly excited regarding the uh, the experts coming forward now. Um, frankly, just in full transparency, it's easier for me to watch experts without the videotape because it is still very traumatic for me um, and has been to continuously watch uh, the last moment of George Floyd's life um, on tape and on the news and the like. So to see uh, the experts speak uh, they don't necessarily need the tape to describe exactly what happened because they're experts. They're not eyewitnesses. So I'm excited to see how they are going to more or less scientifically and and based off of their, their subject matter, explain to the jury exactly why uh, Chauvin is responsible for this man's death. Um, I understand that the defense is coming up uh, as far as presenting their case. Uh, my only concern is really just the threshold uh, to convict somebody is beyond a reasonable doubt. This is not a situation in which the defense has to prove that Chauvin didn't do it outright. They just have to prove that he is not criminally responsible for George Floyd's death. And when you think about it, given the history of, of these cases and the history of, of police uh, enacting violence on black bodies, in, in the grand scheme of things, it feels like that threshold is very low. Um, so I just, I hope that the jury is actually really just paying attention and not just listening to the evidence, but also using their common sense because the, the video shows exactly what happened. And no matter what the defense tries to do in putting the chink of armor, um, making the reasonable doubt, so to speak, hopefully they can overlook their excuses and actually convict this man. And I disagree with what everyone has said. I mean, they put together a methodical case. Uh, you cannot deny it. And to this day, honestly, I still have not watched the video because it's too traumatic for me. But I know that justice is going to prevail because you cannot help with the evidence that's being presented by the prosecution to come up with any other verdict than the one that they're going after. All right, then, folks. We certainly will be watching what takes place. Let's cut our second story. The Nation of Islam, they're responding to Friday's attack that left Capitol Police Officer Billy Evans dead and another officer badly injured. The suspect, Noah Green, who was killed, rammed his car into the officers at a barricade outside the U.S. Capitol. After striking the officers, Green jumped out with a knife and was fatally shot by Capitol Hill Police. According to Green's now-deleted Facebook post, he followed the Nation of Islam and the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan. Here's one of the posts that says the minister is here to save him and the rest of humanity. Now, this is what it said. In addition to my last post, I encourage everyone to study Revelation, study the sign of end times, study who the beast is, study who the Antichrist is, study who the false prophet is, and study the created images during those times. The minister is here to save me and the rest of humanity, even if it means facing death. Be willing to, 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 to deny yourself and follow him. Pick up your cross. 
The Honorable Elijah Muhammad, his teacher, the exalted Christ, is alive and in power. I bear witness, study the ministers, watch his lectures, study Elijah Muhammad, study the mother wheel, which is present here in America. I bear witness again, we have a little time. Signed, Peace, Noah X. He also often shared videos of Minister Farrakhan speaking. In response to Green's actions, today the Nation of Islam released a three-page statement on Minister Farrakhan's behalf, in part saying it is being reported that Noah Green was a follower of the Nation of Islam. The young man, Noah Green, we believe may have attended our Savior's Day convention in Detroit, Michigan in February 2020. In March of 2020, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we closed our mosque and began conducting meetings and classes remotely. A search of our records indicates Noah Green was not a registered member of the Nation of Islam. It appears that in late summer, August, September 2020, he started the process to begin his study to become a member, but he did not complete the process. He did make a donation to the Savior's Day gift every year. The followers and supporters make a charitable donation to the Nation of Islam's Savior's Day charity. Every donor who made a donation of $1,000 or more is issued a certificate of completion. This certificate does not establish that the donor is a member in good standing in the Nation of Islam. Mr. Noah Green's alleged use of an automobile as a weapon and the alleged possession of a knife as reported violates our teachings. We absolutely disavow this act that resulted in the senseless loss of life. It is shocking for us to learn that someone who was attempting to be a part of our ranks may have been involved in something as tragic as this. But we respectfully say to the members of the media and to the American people, Timothy McVeigh confessed that he was a Christian, but nobody blames the church for his misconduct. No one would blame Jesus or their pastor for unlawful and immoral behavior that is contrary to the teachings of Jesus. You have criminals, people that do horrific things, but we never know their religion. It's not important because religion does not teach criminal behavior. Criminal behavior is an aberration. Criminal behavior is a violation. Criminal behavior is absolute rebellion toward what God teaches through the mouth of his prophets. As I said, uh, that Capitol Hill police officer, uh, he uh, was killed. He is going to lie in state at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, just like the officer, of course, uh, who was killed on January 6th during that particular uprising. And so we certainly, uh, any uh, future comments made uh, by Mr. Farrakhan on this subject, we certainly will uh, share those uh, with our audience. Um, to uh, our panel, to the point there, Kelly, that minister is making, um, does is the religion of white domestic terrorists brought up? So, I mean, when this came out, folks were, again, immediately, oh, remember the Nation of Islam? And then you have to say, okay, but what does that have to actually do with the actions? Um, your thoughts? I think that the statement that was put out by Nation of Islam was very thorough and very correct. When we talk about um, white counterparts in, in terroristic-esque acts, we always, I, I can't think of a time where it hasn't happened where it is such a it, it is such that we we talk about them in isolation we say oh he was a lone wolf he had mental issues he came from a bad home they will find everything about the the alleged terrorist to to isolate them away from the base that he claims to be a part of um it should be no different with this man um, and the Nation of Islam. Uh, for those who are familiar with Nation of Islam, who are familiar with Islam in general, 
Christianity, any uh, Abrahamic religion, violence is not such that it is it is indoctrinated. It is not an indoctrinated uh, um, way of life. Uh, if anything, uh, with Islam, my understanding is that they promote peace above everything. So for this young man to to subvert an entire religion for his perversion and his uh, gross misinterpretation of said religion for others to try and take that perversion and apply it to the nation of Islam, even though they have a history, a very lengthy history of promoting peace. Um, it just shows you just how um, racist and, and bigoted this country really is when it comes to Nation of Islam specifically. Um, the, um, again, uh, that, that statement there, Mr. Farrakhan says, look, to associate uh, an individual's actions with their religion, uh, does it make sense? Your, uh, your thoughts on the point that he makes. I actually agree with Minister Farrakhan and everything that they put out. Because let me just be very clear. Uh, when the KKK was burning crosses in people's yard and standing behind the white knights standing behind Christianity as their banner or as their support, no one ever condemned Christianity to that extreme. So even if he did try to blame the nation of Islam, I think it's a very dangerous path for us to all of a sudden start pulling out things with the nation of Islam only because you know, they are Muslim when Christianity is known for terrorizing, people who have followed Christianity have known for terrorizing people for centuries. The thing there, uh, Mustafa, uh, is when you when you look at the actions of white men, their faith or their triggers are not brought up. It's true. You know, let's look at, you can go to the uh, lynching museum and you'll see photos of folks after Sunday service. You know, sometimes hundreds of people gathering around the trees when that strange fruit was hanging there and that strange fruit was us. Um, but no one said anything about those individuals who left service and came and participated in those types of behaviors. And nor do we believe that all white people support that, nor do we believe that all Christians support that type of behavior, even though there were some. And we also know that this young brother, where we should be focused on what was in his background, you know, there, there are signs that he was crying out. There were signs that he was suffering um, from mental trauma and mental illness, which is not so different than literally millions of people across our country. And yet we still refuse to make sure that the proper resources are there to help folks, to make sure that the services are there to guide them uh, and to help them to have the skills to be able to cope with living in a very traumatic and stressful society. So we need to make sure that we're looking at the totality of what has happened in this situation and how we can make sure that it doesn't happen again. And there are a number of different parts to that. Of course, one part is on the mental uh, health uh, side of the equation. And then, of course, folks will always lean toward enforcement. And then, of course, those who want to continue to sow seeds of doubt um, and to create these barriers between communities will uh, lean on the religious side of the equation. All right, folks, got to go to a break. We'll be back in just a moment. Our role of Martin Unfiltered. I believe.